So remember that thing I told you about like a really long time ago, WebPass? WebPass? Yes. No, I don't remember WebPass. Uh, their tagline is uh, Simple Urban Internet. Uh, what is urban internet? Is that different than just the regular internet? No, it means like in uh, like densely populated areas. So they ah. were the ones that were like offering 100 and 200 megabits a second, like symmetrical internet for like 50 bucks a month. Okay. And I was super excited about that when I had moved over into this new building, but apparently they didn't have it because they were in like negotiations and a whole bunch of stuff, but apparently it's finally here. So I'm confused as what to do ever since Comcast boosted their speeds. So are, you have the speed boost over there as well? Yes. And what what tier are you on? Uh, I'm on whatever the blast thing is. So I get the uh, allegedly the 100 megs a second. But the thing is, like, mm-hmm. I generally find that Comcast does, like, throttle. If you use a lot of data for a sustained period of time, you do not stay at 100 megabytes a second for very long. You know, it, it for as little coordination as we do before the show, I'm I'm often surprised at how seemingly coordinated we are. I was actually going to bring that up. I I just noticed last uh la- I guess last night that my Comcast speed is particularly after I've been maybe streaming a couple of episodes off of either Amazon Instant Video or Netflix, kind of caps out around maybe fifteen twenty megs down. Most certainly, and. You know, whereas when I just first come home or if I try a little bit later in the evening, I, I can get, you know, 50, 60 down, no problem. So, yeah, there there does seem to be something kind of going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I get a lot of the same things. And also, like, after you've done, like, a fair bit of streaming or whatever, you or whatever, um, a lot of times I'll get, like, kind of it's like weird, like, timeouts. And same. Like, it just takes, like, a lot of time to resolve, like, a server name. And it just feels like it gets super slow. Like, you're – I don't know. But, yeah, so WebPass is going to be uh, available to sign up for very soon. And I'm thinking maybe I would do – because they also do no contract service uh, just out of the box because they're, like, a very consumer-friendly company. Um, so I'm thinking of maybe just trying it out for a couple months and maybe just dropping the um, Comcast connection down to, like, the 25 meg package and use it as a backup. Because there's no way I could go um, – Internet only. I still enjoy my cable television. Yeah, I was going to ask that. It seems like the biggest hurdle you'd have in changing would not be technical, but rather the price of your television service would go up so much that it just almost makes sense to keep some type of like minimal level of internet. Exactly. Just as a way of reducing your TV price, which is totally crazy, but... Yeah, so I want to see how it goes. Um, Apparently, they've been busy with installs for other people in the building, so I'm going to see how it goes. So what's this called again? Uh, WebPass. WebPass. And how much does this cost a month? Uh, I believe it's $55 a month, um, or you can prepay for a year and it ends up being $50 a month. And that's 100 down, 100 up? Yes. I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but I think we might be a building that gets uh, the 200 megabit version. And how does this work? Is this fiber? Um, It's microwave transmission. (laughs) Huh. So the thing is, like, so it only works on really new buildings, and they put just, like, a gigantic, uh, like, microwave antenna receiver on top of your building, and that's how it goes. And there's no there's no concern about the microwave thing being on the building? That's That seems okay? Well, I think that's the, the hurdle that they have to get through. Like, they only do it with large, like, things where that initial, like, capital investment makes sense. Because I don't think there's, like, any health concern or anything like that. It's just that, yeah. 
Huh. So are you on like a, a wait list or something for this? No. Like, again, I had originally asked them when I moved in and they're like, oh, yeah, we're still talking to them. And apparently it just took 11 months. But um, so, no, I have not signed up yet. Okay. We'll see how it goes. Well, keep us uh, keep us updated. I will. So we have a uh, we've got a bit of a challenge this evening. So we or I should say me or I <laughs> am, am going to be gone. Um, that was smooth uh, n- next week. So I, I will not I will not be around to record the show next week. And, you know, we came to a mutual decision that we could not possibly deprive our loyal listeners from a week with no show, uh, particularly when, you know, we're just trying to build some early momentum here. So I think what we're going to try to do this evening is record a little bit of a longer show and split it into two parts. And I'll see if I can both work some editing magic to make that happen and then also make it so that our uh, content distribution system, as you would say, will uh, properly uh, distribute the show when I'm gone next week or the second half of the show when I'm gone next week. You mean your Squarespace basic account? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't like to give away all of the, you know, the details and the, the secrets of the show, but yes. Um, yeah, I think we're jinxing ourselves since it's been a fairly slow news week, and we have during our like very, very brief pre-planning stage, haven't come up with a ton to talk about. I think the goal of a longer episode right off the bat is a lofty goal, but who knows? We've done crazier things. Yeah, this seems like the least amount of news we could talk about of certainly any of the shows that we've posted and arguably most of the shows that we even haven't posted. So, And you know, it's fine because most of the time when we get decent mileage out of a story, it wasn't actually a good story. So that's fine. That's true. I, you know, I, I like I like the ones, as I've said before, that you don't prepare for. That's okay. We'll take it and we'll turn it. Yes. All right. So... One of the more interesting things we saw was that Netflix reported their earnings recently, uh, and their CEO, Reed Hastings, is generally pretty pretty active on the Facebook. And he goes and posts like long, but very like casual, like summaries of the co- the of the company's earnings. And one of the little minor milestones he noted was that last quarter we passed HBO and subscriber revenue one point one four six billion to one point one four one billion. But he says, they still kick our ass in profits and Emmys, but we're, and then it cut off. We're making progress. There we go. So that's, so I don't really want to talk too much about that, but I think the story of Netflix and how it's really going to play into the whole post-TV era is the more interesting topic here. Because everybody keeps clamoring that HBO should unbundle themselves from cable and that it should be something that you can just buy on iTunes or pay a separate subscription for. So that's kind of the Netflix model in that sense once they moved away from like direct mail disc distribution. So I guess my question is, what does Netflix have to do to keep people watching and subscribing? And how much will people like pay for Netflix if they continue to offer like a broader array of original content? Because I assume $8 a month is not totally sustainable because they've probably topped out the number of potential subscribers in the US, right? Well, so I first I have to, uh, this, this is a little bit of an aside, but I, I love when executives are this 
bluntly honest and speak in this very kind of plain language. Like they, they still kick our ass in profits and Emmys. Like, I love that. That's great. It's kind of like, I don't know if you saw this, but um, Tim Cook, when Apple released their diversity report yesterday or the day before, in the opening paragraph says, you know, let me just say up front that I'm extremely disappointed by these results. I just, I really enjoy when executives sort of step out from behind the kind of PR curtain and, and just speak very plainly. <clears throat> Who else was good at that? Um, There's somebody well, I, I don't remember, but... Um, what's his name? Larry Ellison does that, but kind of in a jerky way. Yeah, there's somebody else. It'll come to me, but okay. Anyway, but so... Yeah, it's, I, it's nice I, when somebody... They, they, like, kind of, they let go of the filter. And it seems like a much more... It's just a truer message. Right. It's not giving away any trade secrets, or it's not making the company look bad. It just says, you know what? Here's how we actually feel. So. Agreed. Anyway, so let, let me let me go back to your question here. So... I think what Netflix needs to continue to do, well, I think there's two things. One is with their, I think their original content is huge. And I think it can become a key differentiator between, you know, both traditional network TV and, you know, companies like HBO. And I don't know about you, but the thing that I've been really, really surprised about with Netflix's original content is how good it's been. Well, let's simply ask a clarifying question. How much of it are you watching? Because really, there have only been two to two and a half original series that people know about. There's House of Cards, there's The Prison Show, and then there was that like weird season of Arrested Development. But haven't there been other shows? Like, there's this one thing called like Hemlock Grove that I think nobody's ever watched. There are other things that they do. Yeah, there's the their first show they did. It's called Lily Hammer. It's um forget it's i don't actually think it's in english i think it's maybe in swedish I, I forget what it is um well i mean i don't think it i don't think it's reasonable to expect that all of their original content is going to appeal you know to people like us it's the same as on hbo there's plenty of stuff there that i personally am not into but you know i i, I don't go i don't subscribe to hbo with the expectation i'm going to watch everything on it but for me I thought, you know, I thought like Arrested Development, even though it, it wasn't as good as the original series, but I, you know, I still enjoyed it. And I really, really enjoy House of Cards. So even, you know, even if I am only getting maybe two or three original series a year, I think that's, that's really compelling. But are you getting that much? Well, so, I mean, in the last year I have. It's more like one a year. Um, like well, the most recent I, season of House of Cards was late 2013, correct? It is, but I, I, I guess the thing I've failed to catch up on that I'll probably enjoy is Orange is a New Black. I haven't watched that. So it, it, had I been keeping up with that show, I would have had it and House of Cards in a year. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, it seems, I'm just not sure. Like people have seemed to be putting all their eggs in Netflix's basket in the sense that they think they are the new television. But, it's more like just a very small television network at this point, isn't it? I, I guess actually, I don't really have a great sense of how many original series HBO has in a year. It's, I mean, it's it's certainly more than Netflix, but it's not a huge number, is it? I mean, they generally do like five or six, wouldn't you say? 
I mean, like last year they had they had uh, Game of Thrones, they had True Blood, they had um, the True Detective show that you enjoy. But I mean, it's not even comparable to like an NBC, a Fox, or, or even like a like a cable television network. Like I think AMC does more too. So really, I guess my question is, if everything's going to become like a premium streaming service, like eight dollars a month or whatever, how many of those is anybody willing to subscribe to at any one time? Because if if cable is because everybody always clamors for a la carte cable, and they want to pay for just what they watch. But what happens when all of these are separate services? Well, I I, th- I think that what I was going to say up front, that kind of like the second key thing for Netflix is it's not just about the original content, but I think it's also the way that they present other people's content. Um, for me, what I've noticed in the last couple of years is that the experience of catching up with a show on Netflix is a thousand times better than trying to watch the show either live or through your cable DVR or even through like video on demand. Um, you know, for example, I, in this most recent season of 24 with the, um, the Comcast on demand app, I tried to watch an episode cause I had accidentally forgotten to record it. And there were like, no joke, like eight commercials. They were like, it was like four two minute chunks of commercials. So it was, it was, an absolutely terrible, terrible experience. The video quality wasn't even that great. Um, it was just overall a, a terrible experience. Whereas on Netflix, when you're watching shows, it's commercial free. It's even gotten to the point where they like automatically just go to the next episode now. So I think Netflix's, um, the way that they're presenting other people's content is also a key differentiator. Now it's obviously risky to, put a big pillar of your business around other people's content because it can be taken away at any point. But as so long as Netflix can continue to, you know, gain access to more and more of this content, I think that can also be a key thing for them and something that I would personally be willing to pay, you know, even more than the current $8 a month price point for. But how much would you pay? Um... Well, it, it depends because, on what I'm getting, right? Well, because here's the issue. The reason you're able to do that and watch those shows in such a seamless and presentable fashion is that it's it's older back catalog content that the networks don't really care about. So, well, like, what's what's a show that's on Netflix right now? Like, like Parks and Recreation. That is usually about a season and a half to two seasons behind, correct? No, actually, Parks and Rec is an example of a show where I believe they were streaming current season or yeah, current season episodes. I don't, I don't think that's true. They don't do that for many shows, but I believe Parks and Rec was one of them. Okay, well, let's use a different show <laughs> to make my to illustrate my point. Mad Men and Breaking Bad. There were we both go. Really good examples of this. So those are high in demand shows that have a lot of buzz around them. They in a big viewership. And people are excited to watch them. And it's a valuable product and it's a valuable show that people want to watch. Those are almost always a year and a half to two years behind schedule. So if everybody wants Netflix to become the new TV that's so customer friendly and it's such an elegant viewing experience, how much will the service end up costing if they have to pay for the content that people want to watch? It's, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to say based on what you think the goal of Netflix is. Like I I've never seen Netflix as something that's going to entirely replace my cable service. Well, isn't that the whole point of cord cutting? Uh, well, I guess I'm the wrong person to ask because I really don't ever see how I would 
cut the cord on stuff, particularly when you factor in other things that we haven't even started talking about, like live sports. Well, but com- um, compared to people that you know, like people who aren't me. Like you said, like a lot of your friends do just subscribe to internet only, period, right? <laughs> well, that is true. But one of the things that I've noticed more and more is that a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people actually have logins for like Comcast and HBO through friends or family. So it's, it's not quite as, they're not quite as liberated from traditional cable services. Maybe you would think. Like, I actually don't, I know, I actually don't know if I know anyone off the top of my head who literally just subscribes to Netflix. And that's, that's like their only source of video. I can't really think of anybody who's like that. Well, but they aren't paying for any type of subscription video service, though. Well, they're, they're using like hipster cable. (laughs) Right. So that's, I mean, that, that gets into kind of a gray area that I, I don't. You know, well, I mean, yeah, but like, like piracy exists and people will share like HBO Go logins. And I need, like, they really need to tighten up on that kind of stuff because that's just hurting themselves. Cause a lot of people do find a ton of value in live sports or, um, like, or like premium video content, like, uh, like HBO or AMC shows. And because of the looseness around video on demand and the whole like on the go streaming services, those are a lot of people who aren't paying for cable that probably would, would you say? Yeah, but I think HBO has come out and explicitly said that they don't really mind login sharing, right? So I'm pretty I sure mean, they mind. I, 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 there was that quote not that long ago where one of, I don't, it wasn't their, it wasn't the CEO, but it was someone in kind of the higher ranks who came out and said, Hey, we don't encourage this, but we also don't necessarily have a huge problem with it. So it, it's kind of kind of up to them, right? If they if they're they're cool with it, or if they're going to kind of turn the other way, then so be it. Hmm. Yeah, I I think I think I guess the the long of the short of it is that Netflix just needs to continue doing what they're doing. I they offer really fantastic applications across virtually every single piece of hardware that you could have connected to your TV. I mean, certainly some of the Netflix apps are better than others, but overall there really isn't just like a genuinely bad Netflix app. And so if they can continue that really solid experience with the app and with the way that they show content and then also continue to to vamp up their uh, original content, I mean, it, it seems like they're, on the right track. And it always seems like, you know, to steal friend of the show, John Gruber's uh, quote, who, and you, you've also remind me that this doesn't originally come from Gruber, but he uses it a lot. It's Wayne Gretzky, I think, right? That they like to skate to where the puck is going, not where it currently is. So I think if they can continue doing that, then, you know, I think, I think they're in good shape. And again, I, I I agree and I disagree, just in the sense that they're able to do this now because cord cutting is not that big a deal to them. But all the back catalog content that they're buying is sh- are shows that have been produced for a wider audience that's usually advertising supported. And if the availability and the prevalence of Netflix is so great that people no longer see the need to subscribe to that and aren't watching it on the first run, a lot of these programs won't be made, which means that then Netflix does not have anything to show and that the licensing fees for Netflix content 
will be much greater because they're not making the same amount of money on the first run. I just, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I mean, Netflix has an already announced a small price hike, right? For if, like, if you, if you're not an existing Netflix customer and you go to sign up for Netflix today, I do not think that there's an $8.99 streaming option. It's like $11.99 or something, right? I think that's true. Um, and I, I think they've said that existing customers are being grandfathered in for the next one or two years, but then they're going to be bumped up to the slightly higher price point. So I think the evidence is already there to suggest that just like you said, that the the current economics are not possible in the long term. But I honestly think that if they continue doing what they're doing with the experience and the content, I think a gradual price increase is something that most people will live with. Like, I, I would have no problem if they go from two to three original shows to, let's say, something like HBO, like five or six a year, and they raise the price to... Uh, let's say fourteen ninety nine. I would continue to pay that because I mean that's that's what HBO costs, and I you know I have no problem paying that for HBO. But so, how many of these services are you willing to subscribe to at any one time? Probably, probably just two or three. I mean, it, right now it's just HBO and Netflix for me. That would be the only. Well, it gets a little complicated when you factor in like I buy the NBA League Pass thing, so that I mean you could argue that's sort of another service that I subscribe to. But sp- I mean, sports are kind of a unique case. So I, I well, don't but know again, so so, so what happens here. when everything becomes a la carte because nobody wants to pay for cable anymore? What happens when you have to pay for um, I don't know what Major League Baseball's thing's called, but uh, and then you have to pay for NFL Sunday Ticket, and you have to pay for all of these things separately. Because nobody wants to pay for the whole package anymore and the traditional advertising methods just fall apart. That seems like that's so hard to guess because that feels so far away. But isn't that what everybody wants? Like people want to have their cake and eat it too. You can't just pick and choose what you want and expect the price, like the economies of scale that exist in entertainment creation to just stay there. And I guess that's the most frustrating part of this argument. Because people are like, oh, why, why is why does uh, ESPN comprise five dollars of my cable bill every month? That's absolutely ridiculous. But then when the World Cup's on, oh, everybody in the world wants to watch it. It's just, it's not, it's it's not necessarily fair. And I I think when people do eventually get to pick and choose, because paying that much to a single provider like Comcast won't last forever, that people won't be happy with the value that they get. The biggest thing that I think works in favor of that argument is the fact that for whatever reason, people feel that, you know, downloading TV shows, even illegally, is sort of just okay. Like there really isn't much of a, there's really not much of a second thought. Yeah. And which is a, um, it's a very unique thing. Obviously it happened with music and, you know, we've kind of seen what's happened there. And I think the music example maybe is a really good one to show. Uh, to your point, how when you start going down this road where people really aren't paying for things and they and they want it on their terms, that that's not necessarily best for the industry. But you know, I music has found ways to cope with it, and it's it's maybe not well. Has it? Because it, it went to a on demand download model through iTunes, but now these subscription services are coming along, which are paying far, far, far less. And that's eating up the download market. But then on the streaming services, they're not putting the most in-demand content on it until that first-run market has gone away. 
So I think music has not matured as much as you might suggest. Yeah, but the music industry has found other ways to make up at least part of that lost profit from back in the, you know, 1799 CD days. Such as? Live music. I mean, concerts now represent a huge portion of uh, artists' income. But who's able to do that? Only the biggest acts. No, not at all. I mean, certainly it's, you know, it's not everybody who's going out and putting on shows at AT&T Park, but... I mean, there are there are live performances in, you know, thousands of bars and smaller venues across the country every week. But that's always that's, happened. Well, it has, but I think artists now recognize that, you know, live performances can represent an even, you know, larger chunk of their income if they maybe put a little bit more focus in on, you know, where to go and, um, you know, who to target. So... But if people don't listen or buy your music, who know? Why does anybody know they want to see you in person? Well, I, I, I don't want to go down too far, you know, down the, the musical. I'm, I'm just saying that I think industries have a way to make up for profits that have kind of gone away. You know, I, we've, you know, just like music got to the point where there was no going back to buying you know going to your uh your warehouse and buying a cd <laughs> there there was just there was no possibility of that i think you know we'll, we'll reach the point with tv as well where the idea of paying 120 dollars to comcast a month for a package of channels 90 percent of which you never watch like eventually that will go away but the industry will find ways to fill in some of those gaps. I think that might be the case, but I think we have a lot, a lot to see in just what, what's going to play out. Right. Cause I mean, the, the cable thing, right? Like it's not that someone or a, a company like Comcast is necessarily losing a bunch of, s- of subscribers. It's just that their growth is slowing, right? No, I, I do no. For a lot of video, a lot of cable companies, the growth in video subscriptions is negative. So I don't think growth is slowing. I think growth is actually shrinking with that. Hmm. Well, shrinking very slowly. Mm. Eh. We're not talking about 10, 15% losses quarter over quarter. Eh, 3% losses every quarter adds up. Yeah. Eventually that trends to zero. That's that's good math. Well, actually, uh, let's let's uh, let's take a little like tangent here. Um, have you been to Southern California? <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, uh, sorry, a what? A tangent. Oh, I thought you said TNG. I thought that was a new acronym you just came up with. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Am I slurring my my words with mimosa? I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, have you been to Southern California recently? Yes, I have been. So, what's the deal with um, with sports broadcasting down there? Isn't there like oh, a, a, a fight going on between like Dodgers baseball and some like new Time Warner sports channel that like which one carries the Lakers? Is it the same one as the Dodgers? It is. Like, so what's yeah. going on there? I think that's a more exciting topic of where all the money is going because sports is kind of the only thing for a lot of people that keeps them attached to cable, right? Yeah. So in Southern California, it used to be Fox Sports was predominantly um, the kind of the carrier down there. So Fox Sports did. The Angels, they did the Dodgers, 
And then the Lakers, they did the home games, and then KCAL did their road games, which is a local station down there. But with the Lakers and with the Dodgers now, that's they, they've both switched over to this new Time Warner Sportsnet, which is a new cable uh, cable network by uh, your friends over at Time Warner. And they've, over the last couple of years, the same thing happened with the Lakers when they their first season was uh, two years ago, and I think the Dodgers maybe was last season, something like that. Um, they've been kind of strong arming in negotiations where if uh, TV providers don't agree to their terms, they just straight up don't allow access to the channel. So like with the Lakers, uh, they did, they didn't come to an agreement. I still actually don't know if they have come to an agreement with, um, dish. Uh, so if you were a dish subscriber, you had no option to get time Warner cable. Um, my grandma was actually a victim of this. She lives in a community where dish is the only option and she's a huge Lakers fan and she wasn't able to watch any of the games unless they happen to be on, you know, ESPN or TNT or one of the the national TV providers. So it kind of, it kind of sucks. But do you remember how much, um, how much they paid for the Dodgers rights? It's, I mean, it's a ton, both with the Lakers and the Dodgers. It's multiple billions of dollars. Hmm. I think with the Lakers, it was, I want to say two point something billion and it did something similar for the Dodgers. So with gigantic investments like that, do you think that the smart money thinks that this move away from standard video is a long ways off? Or do you think they just know that they can monetize it regardless of where it goes? Hard to say. Uh, like we've mentioned a couple of times, sports is just such a unique thing. Um, there just there just really isn't a there's really not an alternative with with sports. I mean, it's not like it's not like Netflix is coming up and saying, "Hey, you know, now you can stream NHL games live." Um, there there just isn't that type of alternative. So I don't know. Like if if you it, there are still enough people who are interested in sports, and I I think there will continue to be for you know for the foreseeable future. And if you don't if you simply don't give people a viable alternative, then you know. Because, I mean, even, you know, there there are things, like I mentioned earlier with the NBA, there's NBA League Pass, which you, you can actually purchase without a cable subscription. And that gives you access to, you know, virtually all games. But it comes with a huge caveat where all games throughout the regular season that are nationally televised. So, again, like I was talking about with the Lakers, um, anytime that they come on like ESPN, TNT, those games are blacked out on League Pass. Well, and That's, the and does the restriction that applies to MLB uh, TV does that apply to basketball too? Which is local games are blacked out. Which unless like, I mean, for you it kind of works because you don't like local teams. That's right. For everybody else, that seems like a complete non-starter. Huge non-starter. And then I think the biggest problem, which we haven't even mentioned yet, is the fact that all of these uh, sports packages, so you know, NBA League Pass, MLB at bat. Uh, NFL Sunday ticket, you know, whatever, NHL center ice, whatever these things are. Um, they don't offer any sort of playoff packages. So when you get to the playoffs, which quite frankly are the games that most people care about, those are not offered on those services. The only way to watch those is through most of the time a cable subscription. Now, when you get to the finals, I mean, like the, the NBA finals are on ABC which you can just get over the air. The Super Bowl tends to be on either CBS, NBC, or Fox. 
but like for example the these last Stanley Cup finals in hockey I think two or three of the games were on NBC Sports Network which is not something you can just get over the air so you know if, if you're a sports fan even though there are all these there are these services that you can get outside of a cable subscription even NFL Sunday ticket for the first time this year is going to allow purchase if you don't have any sort of cable subscription it just, you know, it's not it's not really a viable option because of all these caveats. Exactly. And again, it just also goes back to my point, which is even if all these restrictions work for you, the cost of all of these subscriptions added up ends up not being a tremendous value. Right. Like uh, MLB.TV for the entire season is what, like $150? Something like that, yeah. yeah. And I assume NBA League Pass is similar. It is. I think it's if you do the early bird special, I think it's like 120 or 130. But then like NFL Sunday ticket, I think is like 300. Crazy. So, yeah, that's that stuff certainly adds up. Like I, you know, I think kind of almost simplifying this whole 30 minutes of conversation we've been having. I actually don't think cable's a bad deal. I'm per, I, I pay. I want to say something like $90, maybe around a hundred when you factor in like tax and fees for pretty good internet. Like I'm, I'm the same as you. I have the, you know, hundred, you know, meg down connection in theory. Um, hundred for a little bit, 15, <laughs> right. 15 for most of it, which is still fine, <laughs> which but. is, which is still fine. And then I have plenty of channels, more channels than I really know what to watch and HBO. So, and okay, factor in the $9 a month I pay for Netflix, like, I feel like I'm already, you know, for around $110 a year, like, I'm, like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy. Like, I don't really have any complaints with the way things currently are. Makes sense. I feel, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I certainly feel that I get $100 of value a month out of Comcast, even with all the kind of ups and downs of their internet service um, and, you know, their video on demand not being great. Like all this stuff, like I still feel like I totally get 100 bucks out of them a month. Like no question. It is a pretty good value. I mean, how how many miles does that get you in Uber rides? Well, you know, with the recently discounted prices quite a few artificially discounted mm. See, are we, are we are we going there that was a stupendous transition that i think Ugh. i'm gonna pat yeah, myself on the back yeah but you you transitioned in a negative way which i just well you know, how, how i just i just don't appreciate well how else am i supposed to, uh, to turn this so okay because it's another week in life there was of course more news about everybody's uh, favorite private driver uber um, so I'll let Ryan take uh, take on the positive parts of this. Yeah. So I mean, that's, the, the positive parts are really all we should talk about. And also, should I congratulate you on uh, being hired as their um, PR guy, <laughs> or just like just some right. like Uber cheerleader, basically? Oh, we can come up with a better title than that. I think Uber Laker girl. Hmm. Uh, Uber's Lucille. There we go. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was a really cute picture of Lucille and Robin Williams. Sorry, but I'm not sure if you already saw it. No, I, I didn't see that. Okay. Anyway. All right. So this, so there, there's two things, uh, two positive things, which again is really all we should focus on here with Uber this week. Um, and that is, uh, well, so the, the platform, I guess, is, is called Uber Cruise Control. And this 
is made up of sort of two different things. The first is historically on Uber, when you've requested a ride, you, you know, tell the app or the app, you know, through, through your phone's GPS automatically locates where you are. And then it has a driver come to you. When you get in the car, you tell the driver where you want to go. Well, now there's going to be a new component where when you request a car, you're also going to have the option of not only telling the car where you currently are, but also where you want to go, which then ties directly into the second piece, which on the driver's side, the Uber app is now offering turn-by-turn directions. And if as the rider, you tell the driver where you want to go, the turn-by-turn directions will automatically be fed into the driver's phone. And so when they pick you up, it's going to be loaded and you're all set. Um, I actually saw the second part of this in action this last weekend. I noticed that um, this was a, this was another, I think, four or five Uber ride weekend. Um, I noticed on one of the rides, the driver had a turn-by-turn app pulled up inside of the Uber app. I was sitting in the front seat so I could see his phone mounted on the windshield. Um, I asked him about it, and he actually was a brand-new driver to the service, so it wasn't a great wasn't a great person to ask but i mean the directions work great it, it looks it they use um i think it was i can't remember if it was google maps or apple maps but i mean it, it, it looked fine and the you know the directions directions worked um so I, I think these two things in tandem work or sound really really cool and i think it ties perfectly into what we were talking about last week with uber pool it seems like this is a total logical hook in for being able to, you know, better match you up with other people who are going along on similar routes. So I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about all this, as you can tell, and as you would expect. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, again, the engineering side of Uber is seems to always be trying to do interesting things that create greater efficiencies in the service and make generally for a better experience for the customer. I think those are, those are fair things. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's all we need to talk about. Let's move on. Okay. And, and how much time do you think the developers spend on um, like kind of features to sabotage competitors and, and kind of just like uh, weird, weird business practices, do you think? Okay. Let's, <clears throat> all right, let's do it. So, there was some less, uh, as as you would say, less savory news, which came out this week. And I'll, I'll you know, as as the residential Uber hater, I'll let you uh, chime in on this. Well, it's so basically uh, there was some some investigative reporting done by um, a CNN money reporter who was kind of looking into some of like uh, some investigative numbers provided by Lyft and a couple other things where they found, or at least they alleged, that 177 Uber employees um, had been working around the, uh, around the country to kind of systematically, kind of like, to do like a denial of service against Uber, in the sense that they would book rides and then cancel them, trying to reduce the availability. What on earth? Sorry. Yeah, are you okay? Um I opened up a web page and a Geico ad started playing, and I would. <laughs> I didn't, had no idea where it was coming from. You'll cut all that out. Oh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll cut this out in post. All right, I'm just gonna start swearing now. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's restart that bit. Yeah, I didn't I'm, know, I'm not I doing never... this. To, I'm not doing this to Dan Benjamin way. No, never, never happened. So basically, there were about 177 um, Uber employees around the country that were kind of scheduling Uber rides and then canceling them to reduce the number. Um, 
sorry, scheduling lift rides. And we're canceling them just to kind of reduce the number of available lift drivers, I assume during peak times. And it just seems like a very, very shady business practice. And overall, they estimated about 5,700 uh, fake lift rides were created and then canceled by a small number of Uber recruiters. And really, I, I would not put this past them, I guess is my, my, my summary on that. Well, and I think that to me, and again, that, and this this is an allegation which Uber has come out right. and denied. So, and that, that's that's the thing for me is that I think this story, you know, feeds into either existing narrative about Uber perfectly. Like for me, as someone who's generally a fan of the service and doesn't see a whole lot wrong with it, I immediately am very skeptical of the story, and I think the way that they've allegedly identified these fake rides coming from, you know, air quotes, Uber employees, I think is dubious to say the least. I mean, what, what did they do here? They like, they say they somehow matched phone numbers with known like Uber recruiters. Like, I mean, like, I don't even really know even what that means. Well, so there are people I, that Uber em- employs to try to like, so like earlier, uh, before we started the show, I sent you a picture of, um, uh, a roving ad that um, that Uber does around San Francisco, which says "Shave the stash," and it tries to lure uh, drivers away from Lyft and Sidecar um, to go drive for Uber, where they can make more money. Um, and Uber kind of is doing like they have billboards all over all over the Bay Area for, which guarantees that anybody who goes to drive for Uber will make at least five thousand their first month. I saw that uh, on my way home this evening. I'd never seen that before. Yeah, and I mean, it just, again, I think that the company has a great engineering department, and I believe that there's a lot of people doing the right thing, but it also seems, again, based on knowledge, I uh, mainly on perception, that there are a lot of people who maybe would not be that way, and that it is somewhat of uh, a bit of a sketchy company. And so that's, that that's the second narrative that the same story feeds into. If, if you take it on its face and you think this is all true and you're someone who thinks, you know, kind of or is hesitant of Uber's business practices, then, you know, this this goes right along with that. And again, and so in I do not find myself to be an Uber hater, but I do think critically about what it is doing to the existing transportation economy and the way that their predatory pricing would go hand in hand with actions such as this because the artificially low cost fares that they're offering on UberX rides only really pays off if they can eliminate all competition so that they can then bring prices onto a sustainable market rate. So therefore trying to reduce the availability of lift cars on the road and trying to switch drivers away from those types of services is in their interest and kind of works towards their total plan. Well, so we, we talked about this some on the show last week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but you know, you use the phrase predatory pricing. And I think that's, that's a huge problem here because we just simply don't know whether that's actually the case. You know, Uber's not a public company. They, reveal virtually no information in terms of their financials. I I grant you it is totally possible that the way Uber's pricing the service is completely unsustainable and is purposefully d- being done in such a way where 
they're basically burning through their venture funded cash until everybody else kind of just bleeds dry. But the opposite could equally be true where they're nope, running the nope. service at a nope. either break even or um, slightly profitable position. You just, you simply can't know one way or the other. I will agree based on that. I do not have access to their financials that I cannot say with certainty, but to say it's equally likely is a load of crap. Uh, I, I just, I just it is not don't think you can likely. make an assumption one way or the other. I mean, I understand that you're saying that it's perhaps a, like, are, are they on Amazon or like trying to operate as close to the margin as humanly possible? Or I'm trying to think of who else prices in a. No, I mean, you don't even have to go further. I, if, if I had to guess, I would say yes. I no. think. I think that they're probably operating somewhere near a break even, but I, I mean, it, it's almost hypocritical for me to say that because here I am sort of speculating on their financial position, which is the very thing I'm saying is basically impossible to do when you're a private company like they are. But again, the, but you, you, you I think that's a disingenuous point to take because the cost of inputs is not, they don't get a better deal than everybody else on gasoline and the cost of tolls and everything else like you can estimate what the costs that they have to cover are even if you eliminate all the other things like engineering and administrative labor and all that kind of stuff you can still guess what something costs and you can see what the prevailing market rate for this type of service is and if you're artificially charging low prices to try to push other people on the market that's not fair or uh, just, legal. Uh, you just, I just, you just can't say for sure that's what they're doing. Though, like, I don't know. Like for me, this, this is kind of a. a you can say a, probably, correct. You cannot say for sure. You can say, wow, probably. I think, I think I may have mentioned this last week, but I, I think just briefly, like this is a, this is a huge personal pet peeve of mine, where pundits and journalists will compare companies that offer similar services, where you know one of them is is public and then the other is private and they stay like they want to make all these comparisons about what each company should do with absolutely no knowledge of what the finances are like for the company that's private now in this case you know lyft uber all these companies are private so it's an even more extreme example of where you know you're talking about what the prices should be what's the reasonable market rate all these different things and there's just there's just simply no way to know there's no there's no concrete evidence to say one way or the other on a company like Uber. And I, we were texting back and forth earlier today that I think what makes Uber even more difficult to, to measure. And I, I know things like gas and to a degree insurance and, you know, the tolls, obviously things like that are knowable costs, but there really isn't a company like Uber, which is already public that we can look to and say, well, you know, they're charging, you know, a $15 minimum for each ride. And we know that based on that minimum, they make X amount of money per year. Like we don't have that comparable company to point to when we talk about Uber. Uber is sort of like this black box where I, I grant you that the prices are very low you think and you're that clever. things like, well, like the black boxing is kind of a pun, but, uh, um, you know, things like gas and, and all this, like, does seem to add up in such a way where it seems like their prices are, you know, it's certainly very low, but you just, I just can't say one way or the other. Like, 
And again, I will concede the point that you cannot say with absolute certainty, but I can say probably because again, you can, there are all the inputs that have to add up to a price that is less than what you charge the consumer. Otherwise you lose money. And when you look at what the 20% commission that Uber takes off of people's rides and the fact that they keep slashing the rates in competitive markets, I don't think I'm off base. Well, you know, the great, the great thing about this is that it cannot remain a secret forever. Eventually, you know, either Uber will go public and all this stuff will become available or we'll see through a general increase in their prices over time that the current prices today were in fact not sustainable. So even if Uber were to stay private forever, if, you know, two years from now their prices were double what they are today, then we'd be able to look back on this and say, well, you know, Carlos was right. Well, no, no, no. It just depends on how long it will take them to eliminate viable competitors because that's when the prices will rise to a sensible level. Well, but, the, you know, I, this is also what we talked about some last week. But even if, if they were to raise their prices, you know, to a, a kind of an extremely high level after they've wiped out all competition, then some new competitor will come along. That's always the case now. I'm not, saying, with, I'm not saying an extremely high level. I'm saying the proper market rate. They will stop pricing artificially low once they no longer have viable competition. I assume surge pricing will still be a thing, but I think the average cost of an UberX ride will be much closer to what it actually costs. You know, can we actually, there is one thing about Uber we can agree on. Let's end this with something we can both agree on. That people's anger over surge pricing, I think, is ridiculous. Did you see all that crap about outside lands? And that's 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 what prompted my thinking of that this week. See, you know, th- so that is that is the only time that Uber is operating at a, <laughs> at a fair price. <laughs> so well, let's tell us. So so outside lands for you know I, I'm assuming most most folks who listen to this currently are probably in the Bay Area, but for maybe those who aren't. So outside lands is this you know Carlos, you're a big fan of this classical this big music, outdoor classical music festival, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so it's a big outdoor music festival, Golden Gate Park, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's, I went a couple years ago and I do remember this, that transportation was by far and away one of the most inconvenient parts of the whole experience. Just complete nightmare, even public transportation, just, just a nightmare. Um, and so this last weekend there, there were some stories that came out about people who were running into like 5X surge pricing. And I, I actually even from the Jay-Z Beyonce concert last week, there was 4X surge pricing. I think I sent you a screenshot of that. Um, I made the decision not to take Uber that evening, um, which actually, you know, highlights the whole point, which I think is, is crazy when people get upset about this whole surge pricing thing. You know, there's a very, very easy way around it. Don't take Uber. If you're upset about it, don't use the service. And there's absolutely no way to be tricked into it because whenever the service is at two, uh, 2.0, uh, surge or more, it actually like physically makes you type in the number before it allows you to request a car. So, I mean, there's no way to, you know, it's not like they're trying to trick you or anything. Yeah. Uber hasn't broken your legs yet. <laughs> Show title? I don't, I don't, well, we've already had, we've already had Uber in the name once, you know, I, I feel like we've have to, to vary it some. Dang. Um, yeah. So again, uh, this, you will not hear a peep out of me about surge pricing. 
Because again, that's the only time they're actually pricing fair. Mm. I I think search pricing is not a big deal, not because of that, but because Uber does everything they possibly can to make it patently clear when search pricing is on. They even they even offer a feature now where you, they, you can get a push notification when search pricing is over, which I've used and it's great. So I, the fact that people get upset about it is just I don't I don't get that at all. It's the it's the most efficient allocation of constrained resources. It's outstanding. Oh, there was there wasn't there a, there was a term for that. What do right? you mean, what do you mean? It wasn't there's some there's there's some there's some economic term for when resources are perfectly allocated. Oh, shit, what it. is it? I don't know. I I sucked at those econ classes. Uh anyway, like yeah, optimal um, distribution or something, something so, like that. Something, something per, like, was it like parade? It started with like a P maybe? Pareto or something? Is that something different? What am I, what am I thinking of? <laughs> this is no fun for anybody to listen to. No, this is, this is definitely, yeah, this is what the people like is when we can't remember uh, economic terms from back in our college days. Anyway, yeah, well, we'll also we'll, we'll, okay, cut no, hold, hold, we'll cut all this out. People won't people won't ever hear any. No, of this. You will want to cut that out because that makes no sense. So the Pareto principle states that for many events, roughly eighty percent of the effects come from twenty percent of the causes. So not even <laughs> oh, close. Way off on that. Okay, good. Uh, but anyway, should we? Should we? You want to start the show over again? I'd be fine with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll let's start let's start over again. All right, let's call him Mulligan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. Hey, Carlos. Hey, how's it going? It's good. Have you heard about WebPass? <laughs> I no, I haven't. I think this this is like the urban internet, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's owned by Time Warner. Okay, <laughs> it, um, it's not it's not really, is it? Huh? Is it owned by Time Warner? No. Okay. Uh, I think I think you're thinking. Actually, I think it's actually owned by Uber. When they get kicked out of the uh, car business after finding it's not economical, they're going to go into the uh, lucrative cable business. Yes, when when everybody tries <laughs> is trying to stream like season three of House of Cards, it's going it's going to say, "Do you want to pay three times as much?" Okay. <laughs> maybe maybe this is what part two of the show could be. Is it just us talking about part one of the show? Sure. I think that's that's what yeah that's what I think that's what people right. like. Anyway, so all right, all right, let's talk about something fun. So, uh, Steve Ballmer completed his uh, acquisition of the Los Angeles Clippers. Boy, you talk about a story which, uh, you know, as you say all the time, is right in our wheelhouse. I mean, this is this is this is it. I mean, we you know we both love sports, we both love tech. I mean, this is this is just right there. And and who knew that Steve Ballmer would be the hero of 2014? <laughs> it took somebody as shitty as Donald Sterling. To, <laughs> seriously. Um, well, I mean, so, I mean, Balmer has, I mean, I know what you're saying, but Balmer has actually been interested in owning a sports team for some time. He was part of the group last season, actually for, I mean, really for the last couple of years, but it really kind of bubbled up to the top last season. Uh, he was running a group which wanted to, to buy the Sacramento Kings and move them to, uh, Seattle, um, so he's he's been interested in being an owner specifically of an NBA franchise for a little while. Um, that the Kings thing fell through, the team stayed in Sacramento, so it kind of looked like he was was kind of out of it, and you didn't hear much from him. But then you know this, this Donald Sterling just mess came up in April, and in a very short period of time, yeah, all of a sudden we were at the point where Ballmer was offering 
two billion dollars for the Clippers. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I, I don't really want to talk about any of the Donald Sterling stuff because it's, it's just gross and he's a terrible person and thank God he's gone now. Um, but I think what's, what's interesting about this Balmer thing is that I, I bet you don't know this off the top of your head. So prior to the sale of the Clippers, what was the highest price paid for an NBA franchise? You asking me? I am asking you. Wasn't it something about like some like Timberwolves or some Minnesota team? Wasn't it, like uh, nine hundred million or something? No, no. So uh, I mean, the last year, both the Kings and the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, two, there we two go. of the two of the NBA's you know premier franchises, have sold some something in the middle of the country, some flyover mm. state. Oh boy, um, and they they, they the sold for. Jeez, okay. <laughs> um, they please cut that out. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're cutting all this out. Um, they it sold for about five hundred and fifty million dollars. So this close. is this is four times that amount, and but the obviously they're a very valuable franchise. Like they're not, um, like right. they're not the Heat or the the Celtics or like they're like the top two or three, right? So they right. So they they you know they obviously play in one of the country's biggest markets. They're actually now similar to the Lakers two years ago. They're on the verge of signing a new TV deal. Their, their TV deal with Fox Sports is about to come up. So they're going to sign a huge multi-billion dollar TV deal. So this is not the, you know, this is not a, a synonymous example to like the Bucks or the Kings, but I mean, still just an absolutely astronomical amount of money. Um, but you know what? I, I think at the end of the day, Balmer's Balmer's got the money. This was this was an all cash deal. He had no partners. Like he, quite literally, yesterday or two days ago, when this deal went through, just literally just wire transferred two billion dollars. So, you know, he he had the money, and I think he's going to be an awesome owner. I, I actually I can see Balmer instantly becoming like one of the best sports owners in not only the NBA but like any sport. Kimmy, mean, can't you? Like, he's got everything. He's got the money. He's got the passion. Like, you, you know, he's going to want to win, like, right away. So, can you explain how, um, how the, the leagues and the brackets work in, in basketball? So, like, how often will he and, uh, the Clippers and the Mavericks play? So, I want just him and Mark Cuban to just, like, just fight <laughs> all the time. So, the, so, you know, the NBA's got two team or two conferences, rather, Eastern and Western. Uh, the Western Conference teams, in most cases, play each other four times a year, two times in each respective team's uh, arena. And then uh, teams from the other conference play each other usually twice, twice a year, once once at home and once in a way. So the Clippers and Mavericks are both in the Western Conference, so they'll play each other usually four times a year. All right, that's good. That's appointment television. <laughs> I will not be canceling. I will not be canceling my cable. So Cubans become famous for kind of sitting, you know, m most owners will you sit like up, up in a booth, up in a suite somewhere. But um, Cuban, I've actually, I've been to a Warriors Mavericks game. So I've actually, and I've sat on the same side of the court as Cuban. He's famous for sitting like in the first row, like right behind the bench and bombastically, you know, cheering for the team, yelling at refs, the whole thing. Like, do you think that's how Balmer's going to be, or is he going to be a traditional kind of sit up in his suite kind of guy? I, th I think he's going to be throwing chairs like Larry Bird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope so. That'd be great. Again, like, 
all all the Microsoft surfaced. <laughs> like it's all, all like the whole past decade of uh, Microsoft aside. He seems like a fun guy. He does. I th- like, like I said. I think I think if you can come up with a list of the five people who would be the best sports owners who you know have the money and all the necessary requirements, I, I, he's on that list. I mean, he might even be at the top of that list. There's I, I can't name a single other person who's going to be more passionate about his team than Balmer. You know, there's actually all these like crazy stories now coming out too, where. Um, there's been rumors for a long time that so there's this company AEG, which owns both the Los Angeles Kings, which is the NHL hockey team that plays in Staples Center, the same arena that the Clippers play, as well as owning all of the newly developed surrounding area. So Staples Center, when it was first built, was basically just surrounded by like empty parking lots. It was kind of terrible, but now it's all built out into this thing called LA Live. They uh, they film Sports Center Los Angeles there. There's like an ice rink during the holidays. There's a bowling alley. There's the Nokia theater where a bunch of the like award shows are held, all this different stuff. Um, and so AEG owns that as well. And there's been rumors for a long time that they're looking to sell both the Kings and uh, the LA Live area, which also includes Staples Center itself. So there's a there's a pretty distinct possibility that Balmer could, if that were to happen, also buy both the Kings and the arena and the surrounding area. So Balmer could end up just like owning everything. I actually think that would be kind of cool. How much would it cost to just buy Southern California? <laughs> well, well with, yeah, that whole, have, with the whole uh, six Californias thing. And he'd have, and a Balmer would have to work with the, the Irvine company. And that's, that's a whole different, uh, <laughs> it's a whole different thing. I think you mean the Newport group. <laughs> I think you're thinking of the Greenbelt Association. I don't know what that one is. <laughs> it's the Homeowners Association down uh, where you and I uh, grew up. No, it's not. It is. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe in your fancy section. Anyway, no. I th- well, actually, I'm I'm not sure what their um, I'm not sure what their reach was, but no. <sighs> all right. So, what what else do we have? I love, I love when we add a lot of value to stories like that. We really, uh, really. Hey, did, I, uh, <laughs> I gave people a pretty good mental image of Steve Ballmer throwing a chair in Mark Cuban's channel direction at the Staples Center. <laughs> so I think I did my job. You, you know, there were there were a lot of really good headlines about uh, the the Steve Ballmer thing. I, I, we've been texting back and forth some of them, but I, I think Johnny uh, Ive. What's yeah, that one was pretty good. I, I, I think the the best the best one though was. Uh, uh, I think this was Ars Technica, which gave him the nickname Steve Baller, which I think is I think is really good. Yeah, it's simple. It's it's to the point, and I think it it fits him in kind of a weird, ironic way. Yeah. You've reached the end of part one. Please tune in next week for part two. <laughs>